From the University of Cambridge comes Election, our weekly politics podcast, asking the big questions that you won't hear anywhere else to some of the most interesting people inside and outside British politics. My name is David Runciman, and we'll be coming to you each week from my office here in the Cambridge Politics Department to talk about this unique period in modern political history. What might happen, what does happen, and we're going to keep going until Britain has a new government, however long that takes. This week, we're going to be hearing from Lord Maurice Glassman, one of the architects of the movement known as Blue Labour and one of the most unusual thinkers in British politics at the moment. He has a pretty clear view about what he thinks is going to happen in May. Nobody's going to win. The new consensus is yet to be fully forged. And why he thinks there's going to be another election not long afterwards. But we'll also be talking about the new BBC drama Wolf Hall and the lessons it has to teach us about Tudor statecraft. Morris Glassman thinks we could all learn a lot from Thomas Cromwell. There's always got to be an intensity of creative destruction. All to come. Before that, we discuss this week's political events. And we make a few predictions of our own about what might be going to happen. There are two stories doing the rounds about this election at the moment. One is that it's the most exciting, dramatic, unpredictable election that anyone can remember. And the other is that everyone knows what's going to happen. Neither of the two main parties are going to win and there's going to be a hung parliament. That's what the bookies are saying. You can currently get four to one on a hung parliament. And at the moment, Ladbrokes are offering 10 to one against Labour winning an outright majority, which means there might be some money to be made here if we can get this right. Earlier, I met with Finbar Livesey, Helen Thompson and Chris Brooke, who are respectively experts in public policy, economics and political theory. And I started by asking Finbar if there's anything that could happen in the run-up to this election that would actually allow one of the main parties to win it. Uh, I don't think that there's anything that will drive the election strongly to either the Conservatives or Labour in a landslide. There. It doesn't have to be a landslide. They just have to win it. Even by, like, even by, even one, by seat. one seat. No one, one thinks seat. that's going to happen. Um, the things that are going to move things away from this utterly predictable nobody getting enough seats, UKIP's vote might be soft. Um, the charge they have up the polls is so incredibly fast. There is going to be weakness in that number. And, and that would benefit the Conservatives? That would benefit the Conservatives, but it would also benefit uh, flight voters from Lib Dems. You'd get some sp spreading, essentially. But what's most likely to happen, in my opinion now, is we're going to get some strengthening of the Conservative vote, and you will get a two-party result. You'll get a coalition of the willing to take it on. And I don't think you'll get another election in 18 months. Oh. I think it's possible, that, though not likely, that the Conservatives could win a very small majority on the grounds, two grounds really. First of all, that Labour has pretty systematically underperformed in relation to the polls in every election that's taken place since 2010, whether those are local elections or European Parliament elections. So, just to, but so the pollsters who say that they are much wiser than, say, in 1992, when they grossly overstated the Labour share of the vote, you still think that polling has an inherent Labour bias? I don't think it's that polling has a, an inherent Labour bias, no. I think that they've methodologically sorted that out. I think that the problem is is that when Ed Miliband is on the airways for any length of time right. during election campaigns, that he takes between 1% and 3% off Labour's vote when it comes actually to people turning out to vote. And I think that's held for pretty much every election since 2010. And so just to, just to be clear, it's a turnout question. It's not... 
he persuades people to vote somewhere else, but he yeah. actually... He depresses the Labour vote. Right. So I think that, that Labour... It's not inconceivable that Labour could perform actually at about the 30% level rather than at the 33 34% level. And, and the second thing is, is that the Conservatives have, have got a, a clearer message going forward, both the long-term approach to the economy, which seems to be their favourite buzzword at the moment, and... Well, long term is their favorite yeah. word, not economy. <laughs> long term approach to the economy, right. I think, is long term economic plan. That's it. It's such a good yeah. buzzword that no one can quite remember. <laughs> but what just it is. saying it forty times doesn't mean you have a long term <laughs> approach. To but it's a clear narrative, and it's a clearer narrative than what Labour right. have, and they've got a clear line of attack that is opened up to them by Labour's problems in Scotland, and that is is that Labour will put the English at the mercy of Scottish nationalists. So I want someone to persuade me that. Labour have a chance of breaking through so that that 10 to 1 starts to look very, very attractive. Can you persuade me? I mean, the scenario in which that happens is that the SNP current polling numbers look soft and Labour gets its traditional support in Scotland. Any chance of that, Chris? I don't think Labour are going to win an overall majority, though I think they're likely to be the largest party in a hung parliament. Um, And therefore that Ed Miliband is likely to be the next Prime Minister. And therefore that Ed Miliband is likely to be the next Prime Minister. One of the things I think is quite so interesting about this election is that uh, people always used to defend the the first-past-the-post system by saying that it delivers strong government, and now we're seeing the the first-past-the-post system not delivering strong government because of geographical fragmentation. And people used to say, people who supported the Labour Party used to say, it's important that Scotland stay as part of the Union because that's a necessary condition for Labour winning an overall majority. And we're about to see an election where it may very well be the case that the reason Labour doesn't win an overall majority is because Scotland is part of the Union. So I think the interplay between the electoral politics and the the rules of the game at the moment are, are really, really interesting. So just to pick up on that, because one of the things we're going to hear from Morris Glassman about is he's very sceptical about the idea that a Labour-SNP coalition is going to be the outcome of this election. Although polling, and this is going to change, we're going to see more polling on this, but when people are asked what their preferred outcome is, not how they're going to vote because you can't vote for it, the current preference is for a Labour-SNP coalition. So I don't think the SNP are going to do quite as well as some of the more dramatic narratives that are going around about them. If you look at the distribution of seats in Scotland, there aren't that many Labour SNP marginals. So if the SNP get a huge swing, then yeah, they win a lot of seats. But just as Helen says, there's a tendency for Labour to be underperforming nationally in elections these days. I think there's also a tendency in Scotland for uh, voters to vote Labour in for elections for Westminster. Yeah, because because the SNP voters, have, in some ways, overperformed in the Scottish parliamentary elections. That's my hunch. I think Labour will hold more of its safe seats than polls currently indicate. But that's a hunch, and I may be wrong. And that's one of the questions about this election, because these are all hunches, right? None of these scenarios have been tested. And we are going to be having more than one election going on at the same time. I mean, there's a heavyweight battle in Scotland. In some ways, the two heavyweight politicians in this are Nicola Sturgeon and Jim Murphy. I mean, that looks like a serious battle. David Cameron against Ed Miliband is also a heavyweight battle, but in some ways it's a, it pales compared to the Scottish one. But the Scottish one is not going to impact on the British vote at all. Well, oh, sorry, the English vote. Well, it's interesting because it? Nicola Sturgeon is now making national narratives mm. because she's come back on the and austerity. That British yeah. national yeah. narrative. And she's come back on the austerity narrative saying it's broken. And so I, I think she's seen a strength in the polling numbers and is willing now to step forward and actually make a play into this. And I think that actually pushes back towards 
the S&P being a partner for labor in a government much, much more strongly than we'd seen in the past couple of weeks. Although the complication there, of course, is that Alex Salmon will be in Westminster. Yeah. <laughs> and it's hard to imagine how that works. Well, also, it's pretty clear... Well, he might be in Westminster. He might lose. It's pretty clear that the Conservatives are going to use this line of attack. You only have to look at the posters that they have up already with Fred Miliband get Alex Salmon now adding Jerry Adams. Yes, exactly. <laughs> picture, um, too, that... This is a uh, a line of attack from the Conservatives that I think is just going to intensify between now and um, polling day because even if in the abstract they're faced with a number of options that Labour, SNP, Coalition is the most popular, there's an awful lot of people in England for whom that is probably the nightmare scenario, the nightmare scenario as the Conservative voters suggest. And it's a pretty potent card to play, particularly when the SNP have got to pivot their position to saying that they would now vote on matters that they've previously excluded themselves from voting from as entirely English matters. Thanks to Finbar, Helen and Chris. We'll be hearing more news and views about this week's events later in the show. But first, our weekly interview. I spoke with Maurice Glassman, a former advisor to Ed Miliband, one of the architects of Blue Labour and someone who still has considerable influence in different parts of the Labour Party. He is, as we'll hear, one of the most interesting, provocative and unusual thinkers in the Labour movement. And I started by asking him, what exactly is Blue Labour? A disabusing of the idea that things can only get better. So to reintroduce some notion that they can also get worse. (laughs) That in a normal human life, there's things like death, loss, heartbreak, rejection and tragedy. And we have to be able to deal with those things as part of the human condition and not turn to the state for remedies to deal with the fact that you're girlfriend doesn't like you anymore. So the blue is, is that kind Miles of Miles Davis blue. It was right. originally Not called Tory kind blue, of blue Miles Labour. Blue. But then there's another sensibility which is also a kind of mystery to me uh, where along the line Labour became the sort of governing wing of the PPE degree. We're sitting here in Cambridge so maybe we should say that PPE graduates... That's, means... why, that's why I'm in Cambridge. That's why you're in Cambridge. don't have a PPE degree. <laughs> PPE graduates are people who took a politics, philosophy and economics degree at Oxford. And And they are with a very heavy focus on utilitarianism and governance. Of the current front benches on both sides, it's surprising how many people have come through that that programme, if we can call it Or maybe it's not surprising, maybe it's logical. It's noteworthy. Yes, it's remarkable, Remarkable. maybe is the word we're looking for. Labour became the sort of governing wing of the PPE degree, which was entirely utilitarian and liberal, and ceased to be concerned with issues like democracy, the participation of people in their civic lives, when the data decided everything. Because I come from a background in community organising, a genuine realisation that socialism and Labour weren't talking to people about the things that actually mattered to them, which unbelievably are things like family, the place they live, and Labour itself work, not just justice, fairness, inclusivity, diversity, and, and the rest of the mantra of contemporary public sector management. So, Blue Labour is a provocation in that way to say that the Labour tradition is much richer yeah. than John Rawls. And when do you think the rot set in then? When did you th- Yeah, sense I've got that? a real date for it, which is 1945. Okay, that far back? Yeah. Obviously, it intensified through Wilson in the 60s, and then, well, Gordon Brown was the genuine apotheosis of the whole deal, which was... So very Brown, not Blair, is the apotheosis of this? Blair was very liberal, but Brown really combined the statism, the idea that the only fair and just way of doing things was exclusively through the state, which will be done with no participation, whatever, from the population. 
But the 45 idea is important because that was when, up to that point, Labour was a very rich tradition, quite committed to worker participation, worker ownership of firms, very interested in vocation and the status. But with 45, you got the nationalisation model, which excluded the workforce from any participation. That's when you really got the PPE graduates running big industries. And now the PPE graduates are on both sides, right? We're we're, we're going across the aisle by PPE graduates. Strange country, one party, three centre grounds, yeah. (laughs) So so we're coming up, uh, this, this podcast is to talk about the election in the broadest possible framework to try and give it some historical background, some global perspectives. So you take the perspective from 1945, you look at the election that we're coming up to now Mm -hmm. in the Blue Labour gloomy view on the world. Do you see see grounds for hope? It's not not gloomy. That's the thing. It's literally nutty to think that you can live a life without being blue. You have to live with sadness and tragedy. So it's not gloomy. A great beauty resides in there, as maybe Miles Davis and Picasso, to name merely two, would suggest. Okay, but seeing current British politics from that kind of perspective, do you see the hope? And if you do, where is it? Well, the hope, is, as ever, lies with the with the people of the country, rather than with the political class. I would say, just to apologise to your listeners, this is not the first time I've said it. We're still blocked politically. I think we're in the dying throes of neoliberalism, which has failed to generate value and has given huge incentives to greed. But yet, on the left, they're still committed to a welfare state model without a concept of labour value. So there's massive disenchantment, and I think that's the first thing we've got to say about the election, is that nobody's going to win. The new consensus is yet to be fully forged and put to the people. And if you look at it particularly from the point of view of the Labour Party fighting still to win this election, Mm -hmm. and presumably you would like them to win it. Of course. um, What could they be saying that they're not saying that might just open up a gap in this, this closed political landscape? They're not going to make the change. So they're not going to say it. They're not going to say it. So if you look at the John Cruddus and the policy review, a whole series of, you know, this is official Labour policy. It's not as if I'm speaking from the margins of the universe and the manifesto. Um, We would be really very interested in strengthening self-governing institutions, in a redistribution of power to cities, not city regions, but to cities with city parliaments. And then what we'd do is spend 10% of the bailout to endow regional banks so there could be genuine local growth. We're very interested in restructuring higher education to turn a lot of universities into vocational colleges, a very strong emphasis on vocation. So there needs to be a big change, and maybe we'll talk about that more when we talk about Tudor statecraft and that that move. But this this is a long-term political consensus shift that is required, which involves not just redistribution of power and decentralisation, but also a political economy that recognises that capital centralises every bit as much as the state, and how to decentralise capital out of the City of London and the maximisation of returns and into a genuinely real economy. I'm sure a lot of people listening will like the sound of some of that, think it's not the kind of thing you normally hear from politicians, but will also have a sense that it's very hard to imagine in an election, anyone from one of the main parties saying it. Well, it's the same as 2010. What we've got is a reprise, which is investment versus cuts, roughly. Plus, we've got business every time Ed Miliband opens his mouth saying, you're going to take us back to the 1970s. 
that's the narrative. I mean, that's the current. The, the, the campaign has got a long way to go, and we're. But that's the, the current story that we're hearing. It's, yeah, it's well, it, very, very. It, it looks like it looks like a you know an old left versus a new right. We've been here before. Brown was also pretty much abandoned by by business. But what there isn't any sense of is is a common good, a brokering of a relationship between the different a present estranged interests mm. into a constructive vision for the nation. So do you see any way in which an election that's almost certainly going to produce a confused, fractured outcome where no one has the capacity that usually is given under the British system to exercise real power as a single party, do you see any way out of that confusion that some kind of common ground could be found? Yeah, we've got a, you know, one of the problems with living in a postmodern utilitarian environment is the the constant pressure of the event and the moment. But if you consider, which I do, that we're living through a long-term realignment, and then this election is an important event in clarifying that Labour has to really significantly change and re-establish a genuine relationship with the people who, I know it's a radical thought, who actually live in the country, you know. Well, as opposed to the ones who don't? No, as opposed to a a relationship with a set of abstract concepts which we will pursue. So it's about that democratic thing and about the participation of the people in power over their lives rather than just a commitment to a set of outcomes. So you said the people who live in the country, so the other striking feature of this election is it's not clear what the country is anymore Mm -hmm. because... Certainly Labour have got to fight two separate campaigns. They've mm-hmm. got to fight a campaign in England, they've got to fight a campaign in Scotland. Sure. Um, <laughs> Labour, in recent history, has been the one party that's been able to put together a coherent account of something for Britain. Mm-hmm. It's much harder to do that now. What do you do if you're Labour and you're trying to send out a message of the kind that you're talking about, which is about reminding people of where they live, what they belong to, what the common good is, mm-hmm. and you see the, the country that you live in fracturing? Well, I, I got into a lot of trouble last week for saying what I'm going to say okay, now. Well, do, so, so, do, do say it Do again. forgive me, <laughs> which is that a 2% swing to Labour will completely nullify the Scottish vote. I mean, in, in strictly electoral terms, it's, we tend to forget that England is 10 times the size of Scotland, that the entire population of Scotland could fit into the private properties of North London, setting aside the council properties. That we, so we get quite het up, but... London is a huge city that has more people living in it than the combined populations of Scotland and Wales. And yet it has some kind of mayor and 12 advisers rather than a parliament. So I'm very interested in city government, just to raise the issue, rather than thinking exclusively in terms of national issues, which can't work out for either side in terms of maintaining prosperity and civil peace. Jim Murphy is a very able very excellent politician and I have a great deal of of faith in him as a individual leader but obviously the same thing in Scotland is that Labour became managerial, technocratic and remote people ceased to belong to it as a cultural form and are extremely disillusioned so it's going to be very difficult in brutal political terms the election will be fought in England and the result in England will be decisive yeah, but there are various scenarios in which the election is fought in England, but the MPs who are returned in Scotland hold the balance of power. I think it's not going to work out quite that really? way. Yeah, I don't think it will. So you, you don't think... And polling suggests when people are asked of the various permutations in the hung parliament, which one you like best, a Labour-SNP coalition is the one that people plump for. You don't think that's on the cards? No, that's conceivable, because there is a very strong 
kind of left progressive unity in that. I, I think that there's, I'll probably get into trouble with this, there's a lot more in common between Nicola Sturgeon and Ed Miliband than people realise. They're both welfareists. They both believe in a welfare state. Neither are as concerned with the generation of the wealth as with its redistribution. Uh, they're both pretty much committed to similar things in terms of very robust equalities agenda. So we will see how that works in Scotland. I mean, at the moment, the assumption is that Scotland is some kind of left progressive nation, but maybe I just learnt my Scottish history from sort of Dad's army and things like that, but I've always thought there was a little bit more of a conservative disposition that's yet to find its voice. So you there. think it's, there's a way to go yet? Yeah, Before really. we see the SNP telling the rest of the country how it should be Before the SNP demands more money in order for more welfare. And again, I feel like given the nature of the conversation we're having, this is all a little bit um, event-focused rather than looking at the big picture, but... The other challenge that Labour faces, the main parties all face, is UKIP. What ought Labour to be saying to respond to that challenge? That's obviously much closer to my heart than stitching together a series of left-wing progressive alliances. <laughs> um, just to go back to the event-focused management issue, I think that there will be another election within 18 months, and that's going to be the important election. I think this election won't resolve, so let's keep our eyes focused on two years down the, the road. The next event. The next event could be much more, definitely gives Labour an opportunity to reconnect. I think the key thing that Labour should remind itself is government of the people, by the people, for the people. So when UKIP say we want our country back, that's not to be despised. But what does that mean? And, and our country for UKIP does mean England. does mean England. So this we, is We need to accept that too. And it was Tyndall who said it. It wasn't Abraham Lincoln. It was the guy who translated the Bible. And they asked him, what does the Bible mean? The guy translated the Bible into English. And he said, the whole meaning of the Bible is government of the people, by the people, for the people. So they are tuning in to a, deep a long, English deep tradition. English tradition. And the deep English tradition is a paradoxical tradition. It involves liberty and democracy involves tradition and modernity. It's not a rationalist country. Um, we've tended to forget this, I think, in our political discourse. So UKIP are a reminder that there's been a dispossession of an inheritance, and that inheritance is the ability to democratically make mistakes and to learn from them. You're told, well, you can't discuss immigration. That's illegal to limit immigration because it's against EU laws. You can't reassert grammar schools. That would be, you know, you can't deal with free movement of labour. That's illegal. Basically, anything you think the politics is about becomes bureaucratically impossible. So I take a different view of UKIP. I think UKIP are a very healthy surge of resistance to the domination of a rationalist progressive paradigm that has gripped politics. And so that means they're democracy against the rationalism. That, this they, is the they, democratic search for you. Yeah, they're, they're a democratic search and they're all over the place, as it would be. But what the challenge for Labour is that there's huge support from working class, from mining communities, from northern working class communities for UKIP, which wouldn't be the case if they were a straightforward Thatcherite party. So an ability to engage with the rage and dispossession that people feel is absolutely necessary for constructive politics. And how do you build a common good between locals and immigrants? How do you build a common good between north and south, between small towns and cities? We're not thinking of the levels of abandonment that people feel, and you can express that. I think we've got to get over the instinctive despising. And because they're from an English tradition, they're not in any way straightforwardly fascist or anything like that, as 
people make out. It's a kind of confused assertion of a reclaiming of some political power, some idea that politics involves power and that the people can make decisions about what they Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Is there any way that the established parties can capture that kind of energy? Because there does seem to be just a straightforward clash between the sorts of, like you say, chaotic, disparate expressions of this kind of rage and what happens when it gets channeled into a well-established political party fighting a national election. Well, that's where we've got to learn paradox. So a really vibrant political party is simultaneously established and insurgent. There's a governing aspect to it, and there's a very messy politics going on which is embedded in the lives of people in the different places and interests of the country. So the challenge before Labour is to be able to actually talk to people who don't understand what it's talking about when it talks in this very abstract way and to root it in the genuine traditions of everyday discourse. You know, an honest shift, get stuck in, it's our country, this is your this is your country. I think there are forces in Labour who really do talk like that. We don't hear them much. Well, John Cruddus is around. Let's look at that. I mean, he's a very serious force yeah. that has really played with, with that discourse and does get heard and talks to PAC meetings uh, across the country. And there are others. It's just to say to the people who are listening, the politics isn't a static argument over abstract principles it's about even though it feels like that at the moment that's the problem that's not politics that's just your essay in you know political philosophy that you have to write in your second year really get over it and move into the world you know is what i say to you so one of the things i was struck by um, in some of the things that you've written is that there's both this very great focus on englishness and on the country but you also are very drawn to certain kinds of European yeah. traditions of political thought, including kind of social Catholic traditions yeah. and, and others. So that's another frustration of contemporary politics, um, that European-wide political parties are never taken off. That kind of European-wide discourse doesn't happen. It's very insular, certainly in this country. I mean, how do you bridge that divide? Some of the things that you want need, in some ways, more of a European dimension to them. Yeah, and completely so. And, and Cambridge University is a really good example of an amazingly nationally embedded European institution, the university. And it's always been the case. So, for example, I'm talking about Tyndall translating the Bible, but obviously the Reformation had a huge impact of Luther of Calvin. Um, England's always been part of a wider European conversation, but that's to be distinguished from what's happened, certainly since the war in Europe, which is a fear of ideas following communism and Nazism and a blandness, a, a kind of rationalist, progressive blandness. And occasionally, you know, you've got like sort of postmodern Schmittian saying, oh, no, it's all about power, but they can't talk about good power or bad power, so it's all about power. Foucault was another example of a complete cul-de-sac of impossible to talk about ethical alternatives you just had systems of control that's the complement to the, if you like the bland rationalism so it's absolutely vital to engage in in european ideas and impossible to conceive of england without it that's, that's crazy 
but then not to have that captured by the concept of the EU, that that is the absolute identification. So, for example, Karl Polanyi, The Great Transformation, is a huge book for all of us on the Blue Label wing. You know, it's a story about commodification. He was a Jewish refugee born in Budapest. And he, in turn, was hugely affected by the socialist calculation debate, which was Hayek's entry into the world with von Mises against the Austro-Marxists who did believe, as some members of Labour's shadow cabinet do, that you could have a computer big enough, you could calculate everybody's wants and and you didn't need to go through the detail of a price system. And they won that. Capitalism exerts this huge pressure to come on, and people get it. And they go, oh, well, I feel these pressures in my life. So there isn't, it's only a, a certain class that is hostile to the richness of the ideas. And it's never been the case that England has been enclosed. It's both open and closed. And that's the yeah. paradox. So we've got the institutions, the common law, the monarchy, Cambridge, which are very strong internal systems that mediate. But they've always been open to the world rather than just embedded in a local discourse. And what you say about Thatcherism, the thing people forget about Thatcherism is it was influenced by Germany and the German experience of auto-liberalism. But they were also open to ideas. And that's the difference, right? And we've got to be open and loving of that. And what there is, there's a timidity on the left to actually argue and debate and be open to the right because we're stuck in an orthodoxy that we know better when, in fact, we've lost the argument. That's the tragedy of the left. So it is the case that the market and the price system is a far more complex system for the distribution of what people want, that there's pressures on innovation that can't be ignored, that nationalisation was a failure. And yet we're not alive to the possibilities that opens for the left, that those really flourishing market economies have very strong self-governing democratic institutions like universities, like city parliaments, have a strong sense of vocation that's not commodified. They talk more about vocation than career. So the market requires a huge amount of non-market institutions to function. But if we're just wedded to the state, we can't make those arguments because we're also subordinating them to abstract general rules. So let's just finally come back to... If that makes sense. You want to... That, what you've just said will not come up in the prime ministerial debates. It so won't. it's good. I mean, commodification, you may say, <clears throat> goes down well. <laughs> when you're saying it, I don't think Ed Miliband is good. No. When Ladbrokes do those words, you, know, you can bet no. on which words you think he will say in his speeches, that's not one of them, right? But the quantification is, is do you think that it's OK, prostitution's OK? And then somebody that's, won't say that. no, no, yeah. but that's the way that debate actually yeah, no, works exactly. out on the streets. Yeah, yeah. No, but it is really important. This one, of, no question. One of the frustrations with this election and this campaign for most people is they recognise the sterility of the language, the narrow frame of ideas, and yet when you hear a conversation like you just had with me, it does feel a little bit outside what people think politics is. Yeah, so um, it, I, it, I get that. It's frustrating um, on all sides. Let's just say. Let's just go back to the thing that you touched on earlier, which I just wanted to ask you about, because I've been thinking about it watching Wolf Hall, mm. which, as you once said, and, and you may still I continue to continue yeah. to say, so not once said, you, you believe uh, that we could learn from Tudor statecraft. Mm. There's something about that way that, of thinking about yeah. politics. So you watch Wolf Hall. I, I found myself thinking this as watching it. What, what can we learn? Yeah, Thomas Cromwell is a huge figure in, in my life. You know, that's, uh, when I studied here, I did history and as well as doing contextual history of political thought with all the frustrations that that involves, there was a historian called Geoffrey Elton who taught the Tudors, and that was magic for me. I used to really love love that. And he kind of had Thomas Cromwell. The basic idea is, is this. In 1500, 
England was a backward country. We were behind in science, we were behind in um, munitions, we were behind in shipbuilding. And within a hundred years, you know, we were really established in terms of science, technology, gunpowder. We had so much gunpowder, we could even have a national festival where we showed it off on November the 5th. Um, we translated the Bible, the King James Bible had, had come out. And particularly in terms of currency, the City of London had become the, the centre of the currency exchanges um, and the whole Atlantic trade and the emergence of empire. So we basically ruled the waves, had a national established language and had bridged the gap in terms of shipbuilding and munitions. And when I was looking at that, it was the establishment by the Tudors of independent institutions. So what, what are they? For start, you've got the colleges, Trinity here, um, King's were very important colleges, but they were endowed chairs in Hebrew, Greek, maths in particular, uh, uh, Trinity. And by the end of the century, particularly through the endowment of the Cambridge colleges, England had was, was leading in some ways in terms of science. And then you look at the Greenwich Maritime College, which was established for the shipbuilding and map making. Um, you had the City of London established as the global emporium for insurance and trade. So within a century, you had a transformation of the conditions of the nation. But it wasn't done through policy. It wasn't done through centralised state policy. It was done through creating autonomous institutions that were self-governing. That's why I think Cambridge is such an important institution, is that one of the last remnants of academics who actually have some power over human resource departments and general external... Because you've got endowments, because the, because the university can't be really bullied by the government or the market. It has, still has some internal judgment. But it, but it was done by destroying some institutions as well. I mean, that's the crucial thing about yeah. Tudor statecraft. It's, it's, it's destruction as well as creation. It, There's always got to be uh, an intensity of creative destruction. The institutions that was destroyed was, were the monasteries yeah. and the redistribution of land of the, of the monasteries. And the power of the Catholic Church. Yeah, and obviously a huge part of what I'm saying is to reconcile with the Catholic tradition. We lost a huge amount of thinking about the commonwealth, of thinking about the common good with that. So, yes, there, there, there was very big loss, but the, the statecraft was based on this actual creation of traditions and independent institutions that then could not be interfered with very easily by governments. What I think Cromwell and before him, Woolsey, and the Tudors generally could do was discern the direction of travel and create a set of institutions that could prepare the nation to effectively deal with that rather than setting targets. So it's a longer-term form of institutional statecraft, and I think we've got a lot to learn from restoring and renewing these ancient institutions and creating new ones so too. Do you, so finally, do you think you could get a Cromwellian politician and... 21st century British democracy? I, I certainly think so. I think, I think that there's an appetite for, you know, most politicians have a tremendous appetite to exert power. So it's just, um, you know, paradoxes, only where there's a way is there a will at the moment. That what, what I'm trying to do is open up a space to see what's needed, what we can do, and how to work within our traditions and not just have a, a you know, uniform metric of administration. And I'm sure dealing with the horror of the event of the campaign, 
a few of them are watching Wolf Hall and having moments of thinking, God, it must well, be Wolf fun Hall. to do it like that. Wolf Hall opens up the space for thinking that's politics and that's power. Certainly politics. Certainly yeah, power. and that's the right way. And so, you know, one thing I'm interested in, you know, does Cambridge think of itself as a great institution anymore or is it just interested in the REF? You know, does it have a role in the, in the nation? That was Maurice Glassman, Lord Glassman, the Labour peer, one of the leading lights behind Blue Labour, and one of the most interesting thinkers and most original, unusual thinkers in British politics, as you just heard. Among other things, he thinks that we need to learn from the Tudors. He's been watching Wolf Hall, I've been watching Wolf Hall. It's sometimes hard to see exactly what the lesson is from that, but he certainly thinks there's a clear one for us. Finbar, I know that you're too busy. To be watching Wolf Hall. <laughs> Chris, you've seen the play, uh, you've seen the TV version, you haven't read the books, but that's two out of three, pretty good. What do you think? The lessons of Cromwell and Thomas Cromwell, we, should, we have to be clear, we're talking about Thomas Cromwell, not Oliver Cromwell. I'm not sure what I think about Cromwellian politics for current British politicians, but I do think there's quite a big irony if uh, Maurice Glasman uh, is interested in Cromwell. Part of his argument has always been that the that something went badly wrong with the 1945 Labour government, as he said, to us, uh, yeah. the creation of top-down institutions like the National Health Service and so on. And if you go back to the the period, the Conservative MPs in Parliament at the time attacked the creation of the NHS as the biggest state land grab since the dissolution of the monasteries. So it's a bit surprising to me that uh, Glasman should be interested in the emergence of a Cromwell figure in a way that seems to me what his politics have always been directed against. But that's in a way it's part of Hilary Mantel's genius. She's created a Cromwell into whom people can read all sorts of different things because he's he's both a tyrant and he's also the reasonable, pragmatic, open-minded politician. Helen, is he, <laughs> is he, is he, is he one of your political heroes? I say that I have a, a great deal of um, admiration in many ways for Thomas Cromwell because he is an ultimate politician. He has the clear-sightedness. He doesn't delude himself about what's going on in front of him. And, and because he sees things clearly, he can act clearly and, for the most part, achieve the things that he was trying to achieve. But I must say I find it rather strange that this man is somebody who we hold up as someone relevant for our times Aside from anything else, I mean, this is life and death politics. They play with their lives. And I think that the current sort of treating him as a hero kind of forgets that even if you think of it in those terms, is that it's a tragic hero's story. The end is, is that in a very, very short period of time, he, he loses his life because he makes the wrong political move. And, and it is one of the cliches of democratic politics that every career ends in tragedy. But actually, it doesn't. It just ends in electoral defeat. It doesn't end up hanging down from Tudor London politics. Bridge. It ends in tragedy. And then there are parts of the world, many parts of the world, of our world, where it's still the case that politics is a life and death business. Mm. And it's not for politicians in this country, though, of course, politicians make life and death decisions for some of us and sometimes for all of us. Let's move to a slightly different tone just to finish on this week, because we also in this podcast want to talk about what's happening at the time that we record. The current, I guess, dominant story in the election narrative of the past few days has been Labour's relationship with business. Um, it's also fed into a certain amount of newspaper coverage of the Tories' black and white ball where extremely wealthy people bought tables to be close to the Tory party at £15,000 a pop, though it turns out that's also what it costs to buy a table at the Labour equivalent. It's just not quite the same kind of party. Do you think there's anything that Ed Miliband can do, should be doing, to redress the way that the narrative is going? He's put Tristram Hunt up to say that he 
that is Tristram Hunt, is passionately, I can't remember, I'm paraphrasing, passionately, furiously, devotedly pro-business, something like that. Um, but is there anything that Miliband should be saying from Bob? Less is more. Um, I think this less is, a, is more from Edmund less Band. is more from Evan Middleband. I'll say in this specific circumstance, this is a narrative that is incredibly bland, and both parties play into it. It means nothing. Being pro-business is what? Please describe to me what business means in this context, because business is multi-sector, it's multi-type, it's multi-function. There's a huge density and complexity that people are trying to wash over. And so when I hear this, I, I do want to take them outside and say, please stop using this narrative because it does mean nothing. However... Well, lots of narratives that mean nothing are very electorally mm, successful. Eight, Let's eight, not be naive that, No, that's absolutely true. And this is where I would say less is more because there is going to be an impact in terms of funding into the Labour Party. That's clear. And that's the headline we should say in the Financial Times this morning, big donors flee Labour. Straight may, may not be true. Straight away. So that has an impact on their ability to be in the field. Is it actually going to have an impact on an individual voter? I'm less clear. I think that this is one of those ones that's a great process story for the media, but doesn't actually play as much with the individual voter. And, ju and just to go back to what we were talking about before we heard from Morris Glassman, in a way, the most striking thing about the polls is how little they've moved in the last two, three years. It's not clear anything at the moment is having much of an impact on the voter. But of course, that's true of lots of elections, that, that there is this narrative of sweeping changes, dramas, and underneath it, there's this fairly solid bedrock of public opinion. Helen, do you think any of this is impacting on the voter? And of course, we're all voters, so we can say it's impacting I don't on think us. that it's impacting at the level of individuals making their minds up at this moment about the election. But I think that it is feeding into the overall narrative that is out there and is clearly being pushed by the Conservatives that Ed Miliband is not fit to be Prime Minister. That's the card that the Conservatives think that they can get out of this. You can see that in the comments that Cameron made to the British Chamber of Commerce earlier in the week. And the best thing I think that Ed Miliband can do is really what Bimbo said, which is less is more. Shut up about it because he's never going to sound convincing uh, as somebody who is, quote, business friendly. He sounds like an academic at a political science conference talking about varieties of capitalism. He needs to let the members of And we've all been to one too many of <laughs> yeah. those. To think as voters that's going to work yeah. on us. And I, he needs to go. To, he needs to let his shadow cabinet, who he does have people in his shadow cabinet who sound a lot more convincing on this than he does. Let them speak. So the person who did it at the weekend was Tristram Hunt. In a way that, to some people's minds, but I'm sure not to the voters, but to people like us who maybe spend too much time thinking about these things, it reawakens some memories of the Brown Blair divide because Tristram Hunt in some way is take some ways is taking the Mandelson line in this. Is that stuff just kind of internal Labour Party rhetoric that doesn't really reach out, or is this part of an important story here? Is Tristram Hunt someone who could actually make a difference in this campaign? I, I doubt Tristram Hunt can make a difference to anything in this campaign. <laughs> um, and I think people are Or someone like Tristram Hunt. people are a bit too quick to sort of try and see the the great dramas of the new Labour period reappear in the upper echelons of uh, the current party leadership. I think Mr Miliband was fortunate that the business story was able to turn into a story about HSBC and tax avoidance. I think he was lucky with the way the news cycle played out. Um, having said that, I agree with what Finbar and Helen say. This is an issue on which he would do best to keep quiet. I think the reason the Conservatives like it is that it, it creates an awkward moment for Labour because because there's a division, I think, at all levels in the Labour Party between people who think that there are going to be the swing votes are to be found among people 
connected with small business, who feel pro-business, who who don't feel sympathetic to the Labour Party's traditional orientation with respect to the trade unions. And there's a big part of the Labour base that wants a pro-Labour Labour movement rhetoric uh, that's very sceptical about business. So I think this is largely media fraud, but it's a conservative tactic to make people in the Labour Party feel awkward and insecure about themselves. Uh, and I think there it's probably working quite well. And I think I agree in a way that and I think a lot of people have this tendency to, because it's a simple narrative to get preoccupied with the new Labour dramas of Blair versus Brown, there's a deeper divide in how Labour engages with the electorate, which is in, in some ways a much more fundamental challenge, which is the one that Chris just described. Some disagreement there, quite a lot of agreement. I promise over the weeks we will engineer and maybe uncover more genuine disagreement. But at least we have one disagreement, which is that some of us call him Miliband and some of us call him Mr Miliband. And... Uh, on that note, I uh, hope you'll join us next week when we're going to listen to a very different interview. That is with Martin Rees, another member of the House of Lords, it has to be said, Lord Rees, but not a politician, a scientist, a cosmologist, someone who believes that the human race is in danger of suffering, if not extinction, a very serious setback over the next century. And we're going to be talking to him about how you reconcile that kind of long-term thinking with the very short-term perspectives that we've indulged in this week of democratic electoral politics. Thank you for listening to Election. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.